right, everybody, welcome to episode number 92 of the Between the Cracks podcast. I am your host, Bill, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Chris. Now, Chris, we know that the price of gas is through the roof these days, so we have no other alternative but to stay local tonight. And by local, Chris, I mean we're headed to New York City. To get us there, I think I I actually found a tree that fell down. We're gonna hollow it out because we can't afford you know anything these days. We're just gonna hollow it out and sit in that and just kind of <laughs> float down the river. Well, that makes perfect sense, bud, because we are stepping away from the bright lights of the big city and heading a little further east. That's right, Chris. We're headed to a forbidden island in the middle of the East River. Access denied. An island that has been abandoned for nearly six decades, Chris. Well, being that the island is in the East River, I can't imagine anyone would want to occupy it. (laughs) (laughs) You wouldn't want to go for a little swim there, huh, pal? But tonight, we are discussing the one and only North Brother Island. Now, there are two islands here. There's a North and South Brother Island. But for what we're going to be focusing on tonight, we're going to stay located on North Brother Island. Because, Chris, on this island, there's been more than a few tragic events to take place. And it's those events that kind of give this island the reputation that it has today. A reputation of being a hotbed for paranormal activity. So, Chris, with all that said, I'm going to ask you, why don't you be the first to hop in this this beautiful East River and swim across to uh, North Brother Island over there and uh, give us a rundown. North Brother Island, what the hell you got for us? (laughs) First, let me wrap myself completely in a plastic bag if I'm going to be jumping in this water. (laughs) North Brother Island, we have to go way back before we go forward. (laughs) You don't say. (laughs) Was initially claimed back in 1614 by the Dutch West India Company. While it was initially claimed back in 1614, it actually was not inhabited until 1885. This was to host the Riverside Hospital, which had moved from Blackwell's Island, which is now known to you and me as Roosevelt Island. But the hospital was actually being used as a way to isolate victims from disease. Uh, It started out as a smallpox hospital, and then it expanded to other different types of diseases like typhoid, tuberculosis. It was even used actually for the polio epidemic. They did use this island as a way to not only to administer services for the sickly, but also to keep them essentially quarantined and keep them away from the rest of society. But as we all know, uh, within the past few years, that itself has its own set of consequences. And as you can imagine, when these patients were being treated for these contagious diseases, they were not allowed to see anyone other than the staff. And some of these patients, although they felt well, they were not allowed out due to the fact that some could have even been asymptomatic where they weren't necessarily showing any symptoms, but they were still indeed contagious. 
that led to a lot of the patients at this hospital to revolt. They began trying to contact people from the outside, asking for help, saying that they've been held there against their will. So in addition to these patients being physically ill, there's that whole element of psychological torment going on behind the scenes for these patients as well. So keep that in mind because that kind of lends itself to why some people today believe that North Brother Island is indeed haunted. But Chris, our story goes from bad to worse. I don't want to give too much away here. Riverside Hospital on North Brother Island was yet to see its most famous patient to date. Because it's this particular patient that gave North Brother Island and, more importantly, Riverside Hospital its unfavorable reputation. But before we get into that, we should tell the good people that there was another very tragic event that took place just off the shore of North Brother Island. This one is beyond tragic. Bud, I think you know where I'm headed with this. Indeed I do, and this actually ends up being one of the worst maritime disaster in the U.S. history. A steamship back in 1904, as it was a more popular way of transportation, a group of people, and when I say group, I mean over a thousand, from a German Lutheran church. There was actually 1,316 people that were composed of mostly children and teachers. This was for some annual Sunday school picnic where they would take a ride up the East River on this steamship, which is called the General Slocum. And while the ship had headed off already, one of the children actually noticed smoke coming from one of the rooms and notified the captain. Being a child, their concern didn't really hold any merit, and the captain really kind of just dismissed uh, this warning until all of a sudden it became bad enough that the captain himself saw smoke. Turns out that there was a fire, and this fire had now spread to the point where it was beyond putting out. Of course, now floating in the water, not really having any way to put it out, they basically were at the mercy of this fire, trying to get to shore as quickly as possible. But... Unfortunately, this ship, though it did have a fire extinguisher, it was not actually functional at the time. And much of the life preservers on board, actually, which used cork apparently back in the day, were not filled with cork, but something a little denser that actually not only did it not float, but it kind of easily sunk. So while people are ditching this boat with these life preservers trying to float to shore, there's actual children that are sinking to the bottom of the river because of these weighted preservers. The ship, which was close to a dock, the captain avoids the dock because he's concerned about setting the dock and, and ultimately the town on fire. He aims in a different direction, hitting rocks. All said and done, this tragedy, with the 1,360 on board, 1,021 of them will die. Obviously, making this a little more gruesome is the fact that a majority of the deaths are children. And the initial finding of bodies was 600, with 400 of them still missing. And eventually, over time, just washing ashore uh, because they were stuck in the mud. Like I said, an extremely tragic day for the United States. 
This kind of adds to the lore of this island, too, because we later learn that the captain of the Slocum was actually tried and found guilty of negligence, wasn't he, Chris? Yeah, he was sentenced to 10 years for criminal negligence, not only having a ship that did not have a a means to put out a fire, but he was basically told to take the ship to the dock where the firefighters were, but he refused because he was apparently concerned that he might torch the dock and the town, and that led to more people dying. So these are already such tragic events, but uh, as you recall in the beginning of the show, Chris, I mentioned uh, that there was one infamous patient that resided at Riverside Hospital on North Brother Island, and that was the woman known as Mary Mallon, better known as Typhoid Mary. Chris, prior to us researching this case, have you ever heard of Typhoid Mary? (laughs) I have not heard of Typhoid Mary before. That's a lovely name. (laughs) Have you even heard of Typhoid, Chris? Because I was really not that familiar with uh, what Typhoid is or or was. I think I only know of Typhoid from watching, like, old movies. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, as the name implies, uh, Typhoid Mary, Typhoid Mary, or Mary Mallon, her birth name, suffered from... The aforementioned typhoid fever, which is a disease caused by salmonella. As we all know, that's still a threat today when dealing with certain kinds of uh, foods. But, uh, Chris, the symptoms of this disease, I mean, they range from mild to severe, and they usually begin within one week upwards of uh, three and a half weeks from exposure. And uh, the symptoms are pretty generalized. They're accompanied by... um, feeling of weakness, uh, abdominal pain, constipation, (laughs) headaches, mild vomiting, and as uh, we said before, fevers. As you can imagine, Chris, a disease like this would be somewhat contagious. Now, if you have not put the pieces of the puzzle together yet, you know, initially we spoke about Riverside Hospital that dealt with quarantining of patients that uh, suffered from very contagious diseases. Now, we're on to uh, an individual that went by the nickname of Typhoid Mary. As the name implies, Chris, uh, Mary Mallon suffered from typhoid fever. But the interesting thing here is that Mary herself was asymptomatic. I think we've all become very familiar with that term in the past few years, Chris. But those who are not, I'll just give a brief definition. An asymptomatic carrier is a person that has become infected with a pathogen, but shows no signs or symptoms. Even though Mary Mallon did have typhoid and she was contagious, she herself was not showing any symptoms. So keep that in mind because that comes into play with some of Mary's later behavior. Chris, as we often say, we got to go backwards to go forward here. Typhoid Mary, who the hell was she and why the hell are we talking about her? Well, she was given that infamous name, not only because she has typhoid, but because she was generous enough to pass it on to others. (laughs) What are you saying? Well, when I say others, I mean possibly 122 others. There were a series of different families, being that Mary was a cook, and apparently a good enough one, because she was a cook in some pretty well-to-do families. 
She was hired by some New York City area families, some very well-to-do families, I might add. And in 1900, with the first family that she worked for in Maranac, New York, just two weeks after her employment, the residents of this family developed typhoid fever. Obviously, putting your finger on how it was spread is not going to be very easy back in the day there. So when the fever occurred, she of course left the family because why would you want to stick around when there's typhoid in the family? So she moved from Amerineck to Manhattan. Back then, if, if you were asymptomatic, well, you just infected people. <laughs> and, you know, back then too, you can just kind of disappear into uh, the crowd. I mean, if uh, somebody was looking for you and you did not want to be found, it seems to me that it was much easier back then than it is now. <laughs> no social media, there's no uh, digital footprint, nothing. I mean, if you wanted to disappear for all intents and purposes, you could. Oh yeah, you're, you're, you're basically a walking tracking device these days. Back then, they'd be lucky if they even came across the person who actually spread it. Mary did eventually get on, I guess, the health department's radar, and they were trying to track her down to at least speak to her. But, as you also said, she was switching jobs, and not only switching jobs, but switching her name, Chris. So Mary kind of knew what the hell was going on. She knew they were looking for her, and she knew how not to be found. Hmm, this is getting a little more sinister. Yes, it is. This is getting very scandalous at this point. So, Chris, uh, let's get back into uh, retracing Mary's steps if we can here. As you had said, she heads to Manhattan in search of work, and it's there that she becomes the cook for a rather wealthy Manhattan family. It all seems to be going well and good, um, but unfortunately, it didn't work out. It seems that the members of this family began developing fevers and uh, very severe, I believe the French term is diarrhea, they became deathly ill. It got so severe, Chris, that one of the other household helpers actually passed away. And can you guess who the hell took off after the illness began to spread, Chris? Uh, their youngest child. Oh, no, no, no. If you said Mary Mallon, you'd be correct. <laughs> Damn it, I was close. I think Mary can no longer play dumb here. I think she knows uh, what's going on, and I think she probably knows that people are, are most likely looking for her. But, Chris, let me ask you this. Did that stop her? Well, that's the terrible thing, really. She's now gone to two families, both have fallen ill from the same disease, and not, not just one, several members of the family. I mean, I think seven out of eight in one family got it, and she's just moving along after each outbreak, just escaping it. I, I can't imagine at this point she doesn't realize that it might have something to do with her. This is only the second family she next, and she's got plenty more work to do. What are you saying? Well, in 1904, she heads over to work for a prosperous lawyer by the name of Henry Gilsey. And uh, within one week, the laundress was infected with typhoid. And then soon, four of the seven other servants that were helping in the house also became ill. Uh, interestingly, though, no members of the Gilsey's family were infected. 
but there is one difference here compared to the other households. They were living separately. So being that there was a separate residence, that means that she did not have the same direct contact with the family. So this is the assumption as to why they did not get typhoid, but the other servants that were living in the same quarters as her did. This actually leads an investigator to come in and start really looking into this. And uh, they actually concluded that the laundress had caused the outbreak, Ooh. but he was unable to actually prove this. I wonder why. <laughs> and then immediately after this outbreak, Old Mary took off to Tuxedo Park. What a stroke of luck for Old Mary there that uh, the laundress passed away from this. I mean, how convenient. Apparently now is not only passing it on to people, but she's uh, letting other people take the fall. Yes, and people are not only getting sick, but they're fucking dying. Yes, and obviously that makes things a little bit more serious, which is why now investigators are getting involved. Yes, indeed. And one such investigator, and the, the lead investigator in this case, and your twin, Chris, Mr. George Soper. Now, our man Soper here notifies the New York City Health Department, and uh, they come to the realization, bud, that it was not the laundress who was the carrier of the typhoid. It was indeed none other than Mary Mallon. So, it's at this point... Little old Mary is truly becoming Typhoid Mary, and she is on the run. And luckily enough, they end up locating her, and she was arrested. Forget this, Chris. Not murder, or not intent, or whatnot. But she was arrested for being a public health threat. Now, I mean, call me crazy, but a lot of this is kind of tying in to uh, some of the stuff that uh, we are seeing or we have seen in today's society within the past couple of years. So, I mean, this is starting to get very interesting. And um, all which was old is once new again, Chris. Well, you should mention that uh, old Mary uh, took a little bit of offense to the accusations. <laughs> and uh, she didn't go down without a fight. She actually took one of the carving forks and threatened uh, Mr. Soper with it. No, come on, man. What did old Soap do? He's just trying to keep people safe. <laughs> she basically at this point is still insisting that she has nothing to do with these typhoid outbreaks, that, it, that she has never had any symptoms and that she is not a carrier of typhoid. Obviously, she is not familiar with the term asymptomatic, but nonetheless, that is enough for her to say that she is innocent of this. But what happens next? <laughs> Chris, I don't care for the creepiness here, pal. Uh, well, what happens next, bud, is that uh, Soper and the boys say, fuck you, Mary, you're coming with us. And then they lock her up. And uh, it's at this point uh, that we find out that she's restrained and uh, forced to give some samples. Um, one being saliva, urine, blood, and uh, your favorite pal, stool. But it seems that, <laughs> that she wasn't giving these willingly. According to records here, Chris, it says that Mary was not allowed to get up and use the bathroom on her own for four days. So basically, I'm assuming she just shit the bed and they took the sample from that. Um, 
But upon um, these uh, doctors doing their due diligence, uh, they do find that Mary was indeed infected with typhoid bacteria. But Chris, uh, <laughs> I hate to be the bearer of brand news, bud, but it gets much worse here because uh, upon uh, further uh, interrogation, our little lady of the hour here, uh, typhoid Mary, admits to um, investigators that she, and I quote here, almost never washed her hands. Mm. And, uh, I mean, I'm not much of a, of a cook, and I don't really know my way around a kitchen all too well, but, I mean, I would think washing one's hands, especially as a cook of some sort, is probably paramount to anything else that you're going to be doing in that kitchen. Uh, yeah, and, and especially since which this was part of the reason why people were kind of perplexed as to why the typhoid outbreaks were occurring is because they usually take place in like very unsanitary conditions because what's the really main way that typhoid can be passed? Poo-poo? Yeah. So, (laughs) so she was making a meat lover's pie, if you know what I mean. So let me get this straight. Mary's taking a shit, not washing her hands and then serving food to uh, the, the families that have employed her. That's it. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, th- th- this is going from bad to worse. This is terrible. To give Mary a little credit, well, I don't know about credit, but the concept of someone being healthy and carrying any kind of disease back then was actually pretty unknown, even to professionals. So the fact that she was not symptomatic, she was immediately pushed aside as not being uh, a suspect. She truthfully believed, I think, that she was not a carrier, but at the same time, you have to ask yourself, come on, it's, you've, you've been through, I think, more than seven families that she actually infected. Yeah, and, and we should mention that this quarantine lasted for a number of years, I think upwards of three years. At the time, this was pretty much all new information to health officials and, of course, to the public in general. It's at this point in time that Mary is starting to make a little bit of a name for herself, and these stories are coming out in these health publications, and she's nicknamed uh, Typhoid Mary. She gets wind of this while in quarantine, and um, it seems that old investigator Soper decides to visit her. He was going to tell her that he wrote a book, and he wanted to give her part of the royalties, as the story goes. But she got very mad, and uh, she took off and locked herself in a place that no one wants Mary locking herself in alone and being left to her own devices. Chris, that place was the bathroom. (laughs) Yes, so uh, Mary's pissed at this. Uh, One thing leads to another. She spends the rest of her days in uh, quarantine. When it comes to uh, an end, she tells um, the powers that be... I'm going to clean up my act, and furthermore, to put your mind at ease, I'm no longer going to be working as a chef or cook, whatever the case may be. So it's at this point, after two years and uh, 11 months, to be exact, that uh, Mary's quarantine comes to an end, and they decide, you know what, we're going to uh, release you, and we just want you to please take all the hygienic precautions that you possibly can and if you feel that you are coming in contact with people that may have a compromised immune system and whatnot please stay away from them contact us and we can work with you to try to help you 
But please, first and foremost, do not cook for anybody because this is uh, a way in which this is spread quite easily. Upon Mary's release in 1910, did old TM stick to her word? Did she stay away from cooking? Well, uh, like some of her victims, she actually became a laundress at first. This did, however, pay less than cooking. In fact, less than half. Given this, and uh, after she actually had a wound to her arm and was unable to work for some time, she eventually goes back into cooking. And she starts using fake surnames to hide the fact that she is a cook. Because she now knows that she has it, whether or not she doesn't want to believe it, she now knows that she has this. She's knowingly infecting people. She could be tried for murder if she kills somebody now. Yeah, and then I, I'm wondering, I mean, if, if she took it upon herself to go out and, and do whatever the hell she wanted after being set up with a job and promising them that she wasn't going to cook, I would venture to guess that there's no chance in hell Mary has picked up any of these uh, good hygiene habits that she may have learned while in quarantine. No, no, clearly not, because these outbreaks are persisting, and whether or not she thinks she's cleaning her hands enough, whatever she's doing ain't doing the trick. So Mary is just wiping the ass and making those eggs. <laughs> perhaps with the same, <laughs> perhaps with the very same dish towel she throws over her shoulder. <laughs> oh, this fucking animal. So Chris, what happens next? We got to wrap this up. It, it's hot as hell in this place. I can't keep talking about Mary's shit. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's hotter than Mary's asshole in here. So uh, I'm going to assume that. Uh, as time gets on and protocols get a little more uh, strict, that the health department is pretty much going to be done playing games with uh, old Mary. And indeed they were, weren't they? Right you be. Because in 1915, in her latest place of employment, she is working for Sloan Hospital for Women. Hmm, what better place to work than people that are already sick? Apparently, soon after this, 25 people become infected with typhoid, and two of these people die. And so now, the head obstetrician ends up calling Soper to help in an investigation. Well, when Soper starts doing some digging, he gets, not obviously Malin's name, because she was under another name, but he gets descriptions of her from some of the other servants. So now, Soper is suspicious. What he does is starts looking for Malin, and Malin flees, and the police end up finding her while she's on the way to deliver food to her friend on Long Island. Some friend. Hey, friend? I mean, I think that the, the cops just saved this friend's life. Seriously. I mean, at this point, I have to imagine you're just getting some sick pleasure out of getting people sick now well yeah i'm actually going to uh, post a picture because there was a, a poster that was created of typhoid mary and it has a picture or a drawing i should say of her cooking <laughs> and she's cracking eggs but the eggs are indeed uh, little skeleton heads <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, which kind of ties it all together because if you eat anything that uh, old mary's cooking here <laughs> You're going to be six feet under in no time. Mary, as you said, was caught, and she's returned to the topic of tonight's episode, North Brother Island. Chris, I mean, we still have a lot to cover. we got to get back to North Brother Island before we lock this thing up for the night. 
So Mary is put back into Riverside Hospital on March 27th of 1915. And Chris, that's where she would stay until she passed away on November 11th of 1938 when she died of pneumonia at the age of 69. I don't agree with what Mary did at all, but I mean, you're looking at a 23-year quarantine on uh, an island. Bit of a stiff sentence, especially for someone who was asymptomatic and may not truly have believed that she was indeed the carrier here. But it was proven that nonetheless she was. Difficult situation, because like we said, they had not been familiar with healthy people passing anything on to others. So you unfortunately won't know when she will be able to. And now you can't trust her because you've already told her not to cook. And she's done that. Not only has she done that, but she's killed two more people as a result. There's really nothing left to do. I mean, there was actually talks about removing her gallbladder, which is apparently, like you mentioned, I think, where it was located. But back in the day, at that point, removing the gallbladder was actually, you could have died from it because the surgery wasn't always that straightforward. So that was not put on the table for discussion. At least from what I read, that Mary was given uh, her own private cottage and she did have a job and she was allowed to take day trips. Uh, I'm assuming they had to be supervised at that point to go into uh, New York City. So as long as she kept her hands uh, off of the food and wasn't sneezing and coughing all over everybody, I guess she wouldn't be that much of a threat. But it's a fairly sad existence to live, but it seems that they gave Mary ample chances. She just refused to uh, follow the protocols that they set up for her. Nonetheless, uh, as we said, she died on November 11th, 1938, of pneumonia. So it's amazing that she was stricken with typhoid, but that wasn't even what killed her, dude. So let's uh, try to tie this all together if we can, Chris, because remember I said that in the beginning of the show, there is this idea that North Brother Island is indeed uh, haunted, and there's been quite a bit of paranormal activity taking place there, due in part to its dark history and all the things that we had spoken of. Even after the hospital closed, we come to find out that up until the 1950s and 60s, that the island was still used as a center to treat those with drug addictions. But it seems that there were accusations of corruption and abuse. That led to the facility completely coming to a close in 1963. And as it stands, for the last six decades, Chris, 60 years, the island has remained abandoned, basically using it as a a sanctuary for wildlife. There was talk about using it as an extension for Rikers Island, a a prison that is close by, but that went for naught. So they basically just left the island alone, and it's been untouched since 1963. And uh, I was actually able to go on YouTube and look at a few videos of some urban explorers who got to the island. And uh, (laughs) although it does have a nice appeal to it, it's it's certainly a place I would like to check out. There is a very ominous vibe there, and it is completely overgrown with uh, shrubs and poison ivy and all this other shit there. So all in all, I would say it's a very (laughs) undesirable place to uh, go visit, Chris. Looking at all this and all, all the tragedies that took place on or near North Brother Island, what says you? Do you think that this place could indeed act as a catalyst for any kind of paranormal activity? 
Normally I say no, but uh, <laughs> I believe if uh, with the, especially the tragedy with that steamboat, if anything were to be haunted, I would say that this island is one of them. For the first time in BTC history, are you calling it not bullshit? Well, let's just put it this way. If I had to stay in the abandoned caretaker's house on North Brother Island, I would turn to dust. Chris, I, I, I'm in agreement with you here. I, I think a lot of the stuff that we talk about is bullshit. But this place, uh, <laughs> with the creepiness and, and, and the disgusting nature of the East River in and of itself, <laughs> surrounding yes. this locale, and then uh, the history of uh, the quarantines and all these dreadful diseases and the psychological damage that goes along with that, along with the steamboat accident that you spoke of. I'm 100% on board here, Chris. I would say that there definitely is some kind of paranormal entity residing within North Brother Island. So, Chris, with all that said, it's been a very long night, pal. Fuck. I'm melting. A very long night. What do you say we give the rundown, hop into the East River, and swim on out of here? You want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at btcpod2020 at gmail.com, or you can get in touch with us on Facebook, Between the Cracks Podcast, Instagram, Between the Cracks Podcast, anywhere Between the Cracks, you will find us. If you would like to become one of our lovely patrons and help us keep the lights on here at the BTCRF, we would greatly appreciate it. You can do that by clicking on the link in the show notes as well. So, without any further ado, Chris, put on your little swim cap and dive headfirst into the East River, pal. Let's get the hell out of here and wish everybody out there in podcast land the fondest. Oh.